As always, a bit of an introduction to what we're doing at the moment. If you're just here as a guest or a visitor, um, we are doing a slightly weird thing for the first six weeks or so of this year, and that is a more of a topical series where we're thinking about a particular idea or, um, and then through the lenses of scripture trying to assess and understand that idea. Um, and so we're thinking particularly at the moment about our current culture um, and various threads and themes from that current culture and then trying to understand them from the context of the scriptures and in the Bible, um, hopefully making us better at both understanding the times in which we live, but also then how we can um, bring the truths of Jesus to our friends and our colleagues and our family and indeed our own hearts um, as we imbibe some of those things. Um, I promised I would recommend a few books as well on this. I think last week I mentioned The Coddling of the American Mind, which I would recommend again, so do um, if you're interested in these kinds of things, do grab a copy of that. Um, this week is a book by um, a sociologist called Jean Twenge, T-W-E-N-G-E. -E, um, and she has looked at lots of numbers over a long period of time um, and can see various threads and themes and how things have changed over the last 30 years or so particularly. Um, so some of these ideas of safety, for example... Um, or the kind of polarisation stuff that we'll be thinking about today. So um, if you're a person who likes numbers, um, and some of us do, um, then I'd recommend this. Uh, she's also written a very good book, from what I hear, I've not read it, called Generation Me. That was the sort of precursor to this. Um, so there's a couple of books to um, put on your Amazon wish list. Um, other bookshops are available. Uh, let me lead us in prayer, um, and then we'll have a, have a think about this theme for today. Father in heaven, thank you for that truth that Sarah kicked off the service with, that we are your treasured possession. We are a people with a new identity because of your kindness and your grace and your goodness. We pray that that reality would impact us afresh. And we pray that you would give us great wisdom, both to understand the times in which we live, but, but more than that, to, to see how your gospel is so relevant and the message that our hearts need to hear each day, but the message that our friends need to hear too. In Jesus' name we pray, that the one who brought unity, the one who dealt with our sin. Amen. And we've said it before at Magdalen Road, but we really do live in an extraordinary time in terms of the, um, the ability for people to move around the world. A glorious, complicated diversity of groups multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-belief, multi-everything. And it's glorious because in a sense we can have our own limited perspective, our short-sightedness stretched and challenged as to what it means to be made in God's image, as glimpses of something of the, the end of all things, everyone praising God around his throne. The beauty of that. But we get to glimpse something of it now. Our neighbourhoods have changed and are changing. Our world is changing. I was chatting just this last week to a um, pastor from the States who had visited Oxford a couple of years ago and come to say hi to us and have a cup of coffee. Um, and he had walked down from East Oxford um, back into town, down the Cowley Road. And he was still buzzing about the the eclectic diversity that is the Cowley Road, the restaurants, the languages, the accents, the, the skin tones. And it was two years ago, and it was still with him. He was still effervescent, genuinely. 
So it's a beautiful thing, and yet it's a complicated thing, this diversity, isn't it? We're generally not that good at interacting with people who are not like us. We're not that good at engaging sensitively and celebrating different cultures, different ways of doing things. We talk of tolerance, but tolerance is a, it's a tricky word. Maybe we can be threatened by people who don't do things in the way that we do them. People who don't have the same values that we have, who don't see the world in the same way that we do. That's hard in the first place because of our human nature, but it's actually getting harder because of the kind of polarization we see in our world at the moment. Maybe getting more and more so. Very easily, we slip into this us and them culture. We're not great at engaging with people who think differently from us. So think of Brexit or not Brexit. Think of Trump or not Trump. Think of carnivore or vegan. We're a polarised people and we divide over all kinds of things. Where's it coming from? I think there are all kinds of reasons, um, and that's probably far beyond the scope of a sermon like this. Maybe that's something for you to chat through in home group a bit more. But just even to think about that question through the lens of the last three weeks of this series. Um, Think about, firstly, week one, the proliferation of mobile phones the unprecedented development in technology that we spoke of. They don't help things because we get less good at face-to-face interaction. We're more comfortable with posting and texting and messaging rather than conversing, discussing, engaging. There's an ease of anonymity there as well, which means we can be polarised. People can hide behind false names and avatars and that kind of stuff. We can be much harsher online than if somebody was there in front of us. That's a polarising factor. The other thing as well in terms of phones is that studies have shown, and if you listen in to the Sunday evening from the start of the year, we talked about this a little bit there too, thinking about mobile phones in more depth. Um, On screens, we are less able to take in information more carefully. We're less able to take in and engage with nuance and complexity. And so we don't really engage with arguments. And so the counter-argument isn't really an argument. We're not really considering um, what's being said, but rather what our response is, because we're losing the ability to think in some sense. Week two was about adulting, taking responsibility. And I guess immaturity, a tendency to not want to take responsibility till later on, can mean we're less able to handle nuance. Perhaps it means we're a bit more immature, Perhaps it means we're less willing to engage at an adult level with people. Maybe we're thinner-skinned. Maybe we feel insecure. So we get spiky more quickly. And so, again, harsh responses, personal responses. Because in week three, as Tom was just reminding us with the kids, we thought about safety. And again, that anxiety of someone who doesn't agree with me or agree with what I'm saying, we just play the, well, you've insulted me card. And that is your knockdown argument. Well, you've insulted me, and so I win the argument. It's not the facts about an argument, but rather how we feel about an argument. Or how I I feel. Adrenaline kicks in, and it's fight. And so we try and destroy people, and we destroy their characters. We can be very unkind online. Very unkind in the flesh, then. It spills over.
And then, of course, usually online, we end up with a disagreement ending in somebody calling somebody Hitler. That's kind of how it goes. There is a, there's a measurement, isn't there? Somebody can come and chat to me after as I try and remember it, or talk to somebody who reminded me of it and I've forgotten it. But how quickly do you reach that point? There's a slightly tongue-in-cheek measurement online, I believe. Um, one example of this, this sort of online harshness for you. Last week, we spoke about this guy briefly. It's, it's relevant and it's current for, for Oxford at the moment. Um, is a guy called John Finnis. He's in his late... Um, he's in his late 70s, 78 years old. He's an emeritus professor at the university, um, a Catholic law and philosophy professor. Um, he's currently under fire for his apparent homosexual stance, or anti-homosexual stance, sorry, and exemplified in various lectures that he's given and articles that he's written. And I'm not going to go into the complexity of the argument. I think there's a, there is complexity when it comes to the place of free speech in academia. And all that kind of stuff. But I wanted just to show you, there's an online petition set up against him um, to try and get rid of this, this guy. Um, and I was astounded by some of the comments and the reasons for signing this petition that were listed. Um, so that is the only point I'm making at this, at this juncture here. Um, but I just thought it was worth just to show us some examples of the kind of ferocity of feeling that comes out and the way we deal with people. So um, everybody won't be here and some will be listening online, so let me read them. Um, he is a vile, bigoted, poor excuse for a human being um, whose statements are extremely offensive. This man is disgusting and shouldn't be in a job, let alone in a position of power. What a nasty piece of work. He is a bigot and must be silenced. Um, I'm not safe with this man on my campus. My point there simply is the way that polarization leads to personal attack. In quite a scary way, I think. The tone is so quickly ratcheted up and it becomes very personal and very unkind. Um, there's another current story as well, which I'm going to zoom in on just to try and understand some of these themes, just because it's relevant. Again, it's from um, this last weekend coming um, through the week as well. Um, and if I tell you this image here, some of you will um, recognize that or have engaged with that. Others won't. Um, it was last weekend and it was at a rally um, in Washington, D.C., in the States. Um, it was a relatively gentle altercation of sorts between the guy um, on our right over here. He's an um, Omaha elder, a leader from Midwestern Native American people group. And then the guy in the red hat is a teenage boy from a Catholic high school. Um, and again, my job is not to comment on what happened or who started it or what was the point of it, but rather to just draw some threads and thinking as we try and understand our culture and our world a bit better um, that relate to this sort of polarization epidemic. Um, first thing just to mention is the place of the media in all this. In a sense, the media divides us both in the fact that different news houses will have different biases and so report on different stories in different ways, but also, and particularly for this example, the fact that it takes time to gather information. And instantaneous news stories are not necessarily that helpful. Sometimes they can be very wrong because information comes in later and we begin to see that what we first thought to be true isn't actually true. And that was the case this last weekend. So the initial story hung off the 20-second video, um, and it was apparently about an arrogant, ignorant white teen insulting a Native American elder. It, it seemed like he was chanting 
to try and disrupt um, this guy's song and his, drummer, and his drumming. So this arrogant teenage boy um, being unkind. The whole thing then instantaneously pivoted because the whole two-hour video from the altercation um, came into the public domain. And then it seems perhaps, well, maybe the elder deliberately approaches these teenage boys um, who were there on a school trip, um, deliberately even provoking them. Maybe he was a bit more media savvy than people first thought. Now it seems it's even more complex, and there was a third group, um, and there's been a week of kind of back and forth with various interviews and stuff online and, um, and various um, news programs in the States. And with that, you get a Twitter onslaught, and you get people saying their thing and commenting and, and retweeting stuff, and then having to go back and say, ah, oh, okay, um, sorry. Uh, and you get this thing called virtue signaling, which again will mean stuff to some of you, but others it won't. Virtue signaling is, is posting about stuff, not because you care that much, but because you want to appear that you do care that much, because your, your tribe says something about it. And so you post or you put a particular hashtag to show that you are part of that tribe. And that is virtue signaling. You see, if my people care about these things, then I need to prove that I'm part of these people. So I'll post to proving that I'm virtuous. So the place of the media is really important. At the end of the weekend, off the back of all this, one Christian, I think very wisely, um, posted on Twitter and said, it's almost like the advice in James to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger might be a good way to live in this social media age. You wonder whether that might be true. So the place of the media, the second one is the untruth of us versus them. That is, very often life is seen nowadays as a battle between good people and evil people us and them, between victim and oppressor, and everything is simplified. Everybody is placed in one box or the other. Rather than all of us being broken, all of us being a funny mixture of right and wrong, actually we have good people and we have bad people. You see that not just in the events of last weekend, but again the responses afterwards. We are a tribal people. We are a people who are who, are, who like to be, and were created, in fact, to be part of groups. And we just don't feel as much empathy for people that we consider to be other, for those not like us, for those from outside our group. Some would say our, our tribalism is to do with banding together for protection. And isn't it just the case for you in tribal mode? We seem to go blind to, to narratives or stories or arguments that challenge your team's overall narrative or idea. There can be a lack of honesty and a humility because we don't want to listen to someone from outside our tribe critiquing what we think or what we believe or what we say. Here's a silly example, neither of whom are here. So that's a bit naughty, but we're going to go anyway. Um, imagine it's next weekend and it's the Six Nations. And let's say, possibly, you are Jill Bain, Scotland supporter, not here. And you are Johnny Williams, Wales supporter, not here. And those teams are playing each other. Sub yourself in for your team. Jill will easily overlook her team's offences and get very cross if Wales get away with anything. And Johnny might find it very hard to deal with Scotland not getting penalised where Wales does. Do you see, we're a tribal people. It really does come out in the rugby. It's very interesting. 
And yet we know, you Celts, you all just hate the English, fine. <laughs> Hopefully just around Six Nations time. But tribalism is a thing. Move on from rugby to things that actually matter. Maybe things like politics or religion or racism. And it gets really unpleasant. Because we're not prepared to listen to what somebody else says. Because they're not part of our tribe. Again, that's been clear in the responses and the outworking of this story from last weekend. It's just an example. There are many of them, but it's just current, and it's literally there as I'm preparing. The other thing to acknowledge and understand as well is that conflict or hardship or pain turns up our tribalism. To identify a common enemy means that you and your tribe feel closer you are united, you are motivated. Think of the England rugby team and then all the Celtish teams who love to gather in their hatred of us. The enemy is often demonised, sometimes described slightly tongue-in-cheek, but as a, a repugnant cultural other. If you're a Democrat, then that's a Republican. If you're a Remainer, then that's a Lever. Whatever it might be, if you're a, a vegan, then that is a cannibal or someone who eats lots of meat. And it's also a strange thing as well. I'm not going to mention it really next week, so I'll mention it now as well. But just something else to bear in mind and to have on our radar is that currently we think disagreement equals hate. That's a big thing in our world at the moment. Particularly in matters of sexuality and gender because we've tied our sexual preference or our gender identity with who we really, really are. And therefore, to criticize that or for you to not agree with that means that you must hate me. But actually, that's not something that we can agree with either. It is, it is good for us to disagree with people, but to prove to them we don't hate them because we disagree with them. The narrative currently goes, because I disagree, disagree with your lifestyle choice, therefore, I must hate you as well. And we just want to say no to that. Um, the third one, very briefly as well, is the, the rise of what's called identity politics. It's a slightly contentious term, but it's defined as something like a political mobilization that's organized around group characteristics. Okay? Political mobilization that's organized around group characteristics. So maybe race, maybe gender, maybe sexuality, maybe language, maybe ethnicity, as opposed to whatever party you agree with, or ideology, or whatever it might be. Often it's those who in the past have been historically underprivileged, who have been overlooked, who have faced injustice or bad treatment, and yet now together they are looking to change things, to, to turn it around, to, to have a voice, to challenge. And that's led to something called intersectionality, and I'll be brief here as well, which I think, is, again, it's helpful for us to just chew through. Um, intersectionality is a... Just raise a hand if that is a word you've heard. Okay. Um, it is a voice and a status given to those who have previously been overlooked, underprivileged, or powerless. Okay, so in the past, they may have been ignored. Now they have a voice because of, largely because they were ignored in the past. 
and not shown the justice perhaps that they ought to have been. Again, it's quite a complicated thing. There's lots of nuance in it. It's still developing and, and evolving. And I want to say, I think there's lots to agree with, actually. Power matters. Sometimes people preserve their power badly. And that should be challenged. Where there have been past abuses, that's something we need to deal with. Perhaps repented of, perhaps systems rethought and overturned. Particularly in our in our diverse world, increasingly diverse world. So maybe justice and representation for communities like the Omaha Native American people is an incredibly important thing. Maybe for us to do tolerance and diversity well, we need to engage with some of that. But then, of course, you get all kinds of questions, and there's a sort of spin-out from that. So there can almost be a sort of call-out culture now where alleged offenders are publicly shamed and punished rather than a simply a quiet word. You get the microaggressions from last week and you get maybe something that we saw with John Finnis. That there's not actually an ability now to engage, to talk, because there's a right and a wrong, and if you're on the wrong side of right, then you've had it. Social media means there's always an audience. There's always time for people to watch being shamed on Twitter. And that means you kind of walk on eggshells for fear of saying something offensive, which leads to fracture and disintegration in society and more polarization and less trust and less willing to speak your mind or to challenge the prevailing view at the moment. And so there's all kinds of problems with that, particularly in a university setting, particularly in a place like Oxford. And the other element as well, and I'm not probably going to mention it in future weeks, so I will just mention it now, um, but it's this idea of almost an anti-intellectualism in all this. Very often now, feelings trump facts. People don't really care about arguments so much anymore. Now it's much more how I feel about this, or how you make me feel. As we said, it's, it's the sort of, I'm offended card, or I feel unsafe now. And that becomes a sort of unbeatable card that you're not allowed to engage with. One writer um, I was reading spoke of the offendedness sweepstakes, where opposing parties use claims of being offended as a weapon back and forth and back and forth. In the process, what you consider then to be acceptable speech is, is reduced and diminished. We can't say anything for fear of someone being offended, and the level at which we get offended gets lower and lower and lower and lower before you can barely challenge anybody about anything. And so we get more polarised. And so it's complicated. I'm not going to solve this for you this morning. Um, and to be fair, it's still evolving. It's a thing that we're in the midst of. And if you open your newspaper this next week, or go online or wherever you get your news, um, you will see these things now. This coming week, I will assure you, you will find a number of articles about this kind of stuff. And before we jump into 1 Peter, let me just... Um, recommend a lecture to you from C.S. Lewis from 1944. Um, he was speaking in King's College, London. If you, uh, It's called The Inner Ring. Again, some of you will have read it and heard of it or engaged with it. You can find a transcript online. But he speaks very well of that pressure that we all feel to want to fit in. He says this, Of all the passions, the passion for the inner ring is most skillful in making a man who is not yet a very bad man do very bad things. He's talking about peer pressure. The, 
the feeling we have, the desire we have to be included rather than excluded, to be a part of a tribe rather than not part of a tribe. And that is a powerful thing. Maybe you can engage with that in some way. Maybe some of the feelings you have in the workplace or in a friendship group or even in church, you feel that exclusion. You feel like you're not part of the inner ring, whoever they are. Or maybe the way that you surprise yourself by doing something or saying something or writing something or tweeting something because you want to fit into this inner ring, whoever they are. Identity is such a powerful thing. And we can do strange things because we want to identify with a group or a people. Which means as we navigate these things, it's complex and we need wisdom and prayer We need to grasp who we are as believers. Our foundational identity really matters in these things. We can have a security. And so we work from there. Um, Do open 1 Peter 2. Again, as we've said in previous weeks, if you're just here visiting us, our introductions are longer than usual. So do not worry. You will get to church lunch. Probably. 1 Peter 2, the people of God in 1 Peter were tempted, it seems, to fit in, and well they might want to fit in. Their context was one of widespread persecution and hardship. It seems, church history will tell us, literally there were brothers and sisters who were being martyred for their trust in Jesus at this point. And I guess at times like that, you're always caused to ask questions, aren't you? Am I on the right team here? Have I backed the right horse? Is it worth it? Is God powerful? Was this really part of the plan? Wouldn't it just be better to tone things down a little bit? Just a bit more comfort, a bit less persecution? What's the wise response, we might ask? I want you to look down at the verses read for us. Um, Chapter 2 and verse 4 through to about verse 12. Um, And what we'll see is two responses to Jesus, or as Peter calls him, the rock. And there's a new mission and and an identity for the people of God as well. So two responses to the rock. Um, It's striking even that this Jesus polarizes people. At the heart of this passage, Jesus polarizes people. So polarization, in one sense, is something we ought to expect. We ought to not be surprised by. Because either there's a building upon him, or there's a rejection of him as the rock. Fundamentally, he he divides people. So do you see, even though verse 4, he's rejected by humans, he is still chosen by God and precious to him. That rejected by humans is is impossible to miss as you go through the Gospels, isn't it? You Think of Jesus getting under people's skin. He didn't match up to their expectations. He he wasn't a people pleaser. His, His enemies even united against him. And so he he was hated, rejected. Someone said that the revolutionaries hated him because he wouldn't use force. The politicians hated him because he undermined their power. The nice people were furious because he exposed their hypocrisy. And even at the end, his disciples deserted him. Somehow he ticked so many people off that he ended up hanging on a cross. 
And there the majority of his friends fail him. But Peter's point is that Jesus' lot is our lot. Jesus was the living stone, verse 4, rejected by humans, chosen by God. But we also, like living stones, verse 5, we ought to expect what, what he experienced. Christians in Turkey, scattered and exiled, remember Jesus. Christians in Oxford, scratching our heads, remember Jesus. Rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. And yet from that, we are then built into a true temple, a spiritual house. And then Peter kind of pivots his metaphor slightly. So we're not just a temple, we're priests in the temple, who do the work of the temple. And his argument then comes from Isaiah. If you look at the little footnote at the bottom, verse 6. Jesus is the perfectly hewn cornerstone of a new temple, which is his people. Which will mean in AD 70, in a few years' time, when the Romans decimate the temple, it won't matter that much. Because God the Son... Jesus Christ is the great cornerstone of a new temple, an unconquerable building, a a people, his, his church. And he is building this temple of people. And that is unstoppable. Have a look at some of the, the ideas from this temple. He's a people being built, we are a people being built together, verse 5. Which which is striking because. Again, in church even, where we divide and where there are cliques and factions and where even we can be polarized in a room like this and where we need to forgive each other and we need to be unified. But we need to remember that Jesus is building us together as a temple. We need to live out that unity that he is giving us, has given us. I take it a temple of God's body will be a place where we listen well, a place where we don't expect the worst of people, where we are gentle, where we respond kindly, where, where we remember we've got two ears and one mouth. The danger can be, because that's the way everyone else does it at the moment, that we just respond very harshly. But there's something fundamentally unified about the people of God as we are a temple, a holy temple, a holy priesthood. The other thing to say is that he is the cornerstone. We are a people centered around Jesus. You know, this church is not fundamentally an institution built around traditions or, or a moral code or a physical building. Can't really be here. Or a particular culture or a lifestyle or things that we stand for or the way that we look or the way that we dress. But a church is founded upon Jesus centered around him. His, his death for our sins, our humility that comes from knowing we all need forgiveness, united in our trust of him on the cross together, united in the new life as he is raised again, united together as we are united to him, centered around Jesus, shaped and molded around his life and example, his way of doing things, 
The way he subverts expectations where legalists are exposed and alienated, where prodigal sons are welcomed back in and included and loved. He is the cornerstone of this solid, eternal, unbreakable temple. Striking as well in verse 6 that we're a people who will never be put to shame. Shame, as it is in our day, is a a huge motivating factor for the way people behave. It was then, it is now. Um, I'm struck by this, and so here's a um, quote from a commentary, a lady called Karen Jobes writing on 1 Peter. She says this, um, it's probably worth saying it's not just Christians actually now, subjected to That's actually the way the online world works often. Um, Christians were subjected to a barrage of verbal abuse designed to demean, discredit, and shame the believers as social and moral deviants endangering the common good. This procedure of public shaming was employed as a means of social control with the aim of pressuring the minority community to conform to conventional values and standards of conduct. How relevant is that? How contemporary is that when it comes to online culture particularly? I say it's not just for Christians. Shame is a powerful motivator to silence, to sideline, to squash someone who doesn't quite fit in with the way everyone else does things. You get all kind of shaming online. You get body shaming. You get fat shaming. You get fit shaming. You get slut shaming. It's just destructive and silencing destroys lives. But Peter says, for the one who trusts in Jesus will never be put to shame finally. So either there's the building upon him. That's the first sort of polarizing dimension. The second one, though, is the rejection of him. And let me read verse 7 to 8. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Do you see, the first thing that God does as people reject him is simply speaking, he builds his church anyway. Again, we shouldn't be surprised at that. This time from Psalm 118, the psalmist pictures a stone kind of judged unsuitable to be used in building. It's cast aside. It's sort of chucked out over there somewhere. But then the master builder comes along and says, ah, the Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our eyes. And he spots the mistake. He brings in the rejected stone as the cornerstone, and everything else is built off it. Again, you see the relevance for us in our culture. Jesus has been rejected. He's been cast aside. They they sneer at him. They consider him to be dangerous. They sneer at us. They consider us to be dangerous. God quietly comes along and builds his own building with Christ as the cornerstone. The world might reject him. That's okay. That's how it was and that's how it will be. God just carries on with his plan, building a temple around Christ. When we feel small, when we feel scared, 
Remember, it's part of the plan. It's okay that the world has rejected Christ, rejected us. God is still getting on with it. He's still building his temple, still building his church. What does this all mean for us in terms of polarization and an inability that our world has at the moment to engage and to talk well to each other? Um, I'm going to read just the next little bit of the passage. Again, we've skated off this, so there'll be opportunity midweek to to do a bit more digging. But just to draw through two brief thoughts and applications off the back of verse 9 to 12. But you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you would not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds. And glorify God on the day he visits us. And two broad threads. We are a new people. As a people of God, we are fundamentally united together in Christ. In all our diversity and our polarization, naturally, even in a room like this, a breadth of humanity in this primary school gym this morning. Your, your language, your personality, your age, your skin colour, your temperament, your experience, your political ideals even. But supernaturally we are drawn together because we are a new people. We are the temple of God. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are his special possession. Drawn out of darkness and into his light. We weren't a people, but now we are. We, we hadn't received mercy, but now we receive mercy. And you know, in a world of confusion and where so much of this polarization seems to hang around the idea of identity and who I really am and threats towards my identity, us knowing who we are is so important. Because when those things are in place, that means we can we cannot respond quite so quickly or harshly or brashly. Because we don't feel so threatened because we know who we are. Why not memorize verse 9 and 10 this week? Why not commit those verses to your head and your heart so that you don't need to respond? so that I don't need to respond in a way that's defensive. Peter makes it crystal clear for us, foundationally, who we are, and those truths really matter. I wonder if they particularly matter in a world that's so confused about identity. You see, when that foundational identity is in place, that will have implications for how we respond to things, for what we respond to. But maybe it'll mean we won't get drawn into those verbal back and forths or the virtue signalling, or the the slow to listen and quick to speak, as we can so often be. Maybe it will mean lovingly we will speak up because we're a royal priesthood, because we've been shown mercy, because we are God's holy nation, and therefore the things that we care about matter. Maybe, Maybe issues of justice matter, and therefore we will speak up for them because of who we are, because of our identity. 
The danger is our identity can get eroded. And then we're all at sea. And we just look just like everyone else. Um, the second one is a new way of living. Um, verse 11 and 12 really are favourites for me. Again, if you're feeling optimistic, you could memorise them as well. Um, just a couple of things to pull out there. Notice the normal Christian life is a battle. If you are a believer here this morning, you will know something of that battle. See that in verse 11? You will know the reality of sin that wars against your soul. And that reality will be different for each of us. There will be tendencies within each of us. There will be experiences from the past that impact us now. But we will know something of that battle for each of us, of living, you living for Jesus in your context, in your body. That will be a battle that will be unique for each of us, but we will be united in our response to those battles because we are to live such good lives among the pagans, he says. That is, that those cynics looking in, that a disbelieving, confused world looks at us, sees how we live, perhaps sees the differences in our responses, the way that we treat people. Perhaps that we're a people who bring peace and forgiveness, people who have been shown mercy, and so we show mercy. And so they, they look in at the good lives that we live, and finally, one day, they will glorify God on the day he visits us. I, I take it that means they have bowed the knee to him. The response of the oppressed people here that Peter is writing to is so countercultural that it changes the lives of those looking in forever, eternally. So the normal Christian life is a battle and we're to respond in a particular way. But I want to as well just to see that we are to be living among the pagans. Um, that means simply people who don't follow Jesus. It means we're not hidden away. It means we're not... Um, we're not in such a holy huddle that people can't actually look into our lives and see what's going on. I think maybe that's something of what's happened in the last few weeks um, in terms of our building and the local area and the planning application and the local community. And I think the way, the gentle way that we've responded, I, I'm hearing, are producing some really warm and fruitful responses from those looking in. But then it works as well for each of us in the, in the workplace, in our family, with our spouse, on our streets, at school, with colleagues, with fellow students, whatever it might be. What does living such good lives among the pagans for you, me, in our polarised, 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 and shouty and fearful and hateful world, what does living such a good life there mean that they end up giving their life to Jesus? There's a home group question for you. There's a question as you're queuing for coffee in a moment for you. How can we be so loving and kind and distinctive and humble and gentle and salty, not avoiding conflicts necessarily, but just being careful in the way that we do it, perhaps, so that they see something different in us. Because we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, because we know who we are, 
And so we respond in a way that's different. I've gone on too long. Let me pray for us, and then we shall sing. Father in heaven, we confess that we find these things hard. And so we pray that you would give us wisdom. We pray fundamentally we might know who we are as your people. And would that truth shape how we respond and how we live in this world? Help us, please, to live such good lives among those around us that though they may accuse us of doing wrong, they may see the way we live. And when the Lord Jesus returns, they will bow the knee to him. Help us to know what that means. Give us strength to live like that, we pray. In his name, amen.